0: All right, folks, thank you for tuning in to another Bucks of America podcast. This morning, I have Chad Anderson from Illinois. So, Chad, why don't you give us a little uh, info about yourself?
1: So, I'm outdoorsman, conservationist myself. I was in the military for a few years. I work for a great company. Now, I've got two daughters, mm-hmm. Loretta and Clara. I've got a wife and two dogs living the American dream.
0: Wow, that's quite the establishment there, right there. Now, you were, you you were ta- we were talking last night that you you met your connection through your years' job through the internet, right?
1: um the job that i have currently yeah we were talking a little bit about how small the world is it was strangely obvious to me when i was in the military but even furthermore in the position that i'm in now with the company i work for my wife's uncle messaged me out of the blue and Mm -hmm. said hey we like an opportunity with this company they're hiring and i was just a mechanic in missouri and you know wanted to move back home up here to northern illinois and uh, it was just a small world, a weird happenstance. There was, what makes it odd is John Deere is the company that I work for. Mm-hmm. And that was my life goal was to someday work for them. And out of the blue, we were eating supper one night. Out of the blue, he calls me and offers me the position. And so it's, it just kind of plays back into how small the world is and how happenstance just happens
0: yeah that's very true because like i got in the, into the out world, outdoor world just to look for new people to go fishing and hunting with and it's just it's 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 amazing how powerful social media really is because phenomenal because it's like not only can we provide a solid message but we can also discuss talk to people and hopefully recruit them to come on and join the the dark side of spending all your money on fishing gear and hunting gear you know and and it's and it's great and it's like um I met your sister through my wife that uh, is married to her cousin, which is fantastic, Caleb. And it was just it's like she told me about your elk hunt And it's like we would make a good fit. And we should have a conversation. My original idea was to actually be able to come down there and actually have a face-to-face conversation. With, uh, with, our, with, our, with her and I schedule right now, making it down there, we're talking to her grandma over there in, in uh, Deer Grove. Yeah, Dear Grove, and it's just not going to happen for us. So it's like, well, let's do it. Let's see. Can, I can shoot out there, and I needed to get in a podcast on the way, and so it's like, well, I'll ask you, because it's like, I really wanted to find out more about the cast, the Cat Masters Tournament, and and how you stumbled across it.
1: It's a bit longer of a story, but I'll shorten it down for you. Go for um, it, man. We,
0: this this is long-form conversation, so it's like, you, you can be as detailed as you'd like. That's the nice thing about podcasts. There's no rush.
1: Perfect. Well, I met a guy through a uh, again, through a mutual friend. Um, His name's Brandon Hackard, and uh, he's out of Sterling, Illinois. Anyways, he had signed up and already went through the loan process and everything to get a 2019 Easy EasyCat, and it's probably the biggest boat that you can consider a catfishing boat or a professional-grade catfishing boat. I ended up talking to him. Me and our mutual friend ended up Having have a conversation that led into getting real serious about the tournament series, um, getting into not only local tournaments, but away tournaments, tournaments that are on bodies of water that we've never even seen before or heard of, mm-hmm. let alone fish. And uh, he's got state-of-the-art electronics, Hummingbird humming, hummingbird, and Garmin. He's got LiveScope, Panoptics. He's got all of the, the important stuff that you would need. To be competitive, especially in a, a tournament like Lake Texoma's Cat Masters Classic, that's it was the premier prestige catfish tournament in the nation, and to date, it had the highest payout in history.
0: I was reading; it was like twenty-five grand, wasn't it? Forty
1: thousand dollars. Holy there cow! They're uh, yeah, they're um. I guess their, their media presence, social media presence is still in the work. Nothing against Catmasters. But there, it, it is hard to read based off of their website and their Facebook profile. Uh, but it was $40,000. I mean, they had first place, first and second place, I believe, had to take a lie detector test to actually qualify for the money. It's a okay. it, pretty wild and crazy thing. But backing up to getting into that tournament, Brandon had talked to me about it and knows that I'm a serious fisherman, especially catfish. That's what I grew up on. That's where I hang my hat. And uh, he asked me if, you know, if I'd be comfortable taking a pocket full of money and throwing it at a tournament that we don't even, you know, know anything about really. And I said, sure, why not? I, I, I can catch fish anywhere given, you know, the right conditions. Later on, I'll tell you that there was horrible conditions and, Everybody, even professional guides that guide on that lake every single day weren't catching fish. So we, we bought some more gear. Uh, it was a blue cat, mainly. Blue cats were what were winning that tournament. And blue cats, I don't know if you're familiar with Oh, that. I am.
0: I love blue they, cats.
1: Yeah, they, they get huge. Um, I think it was 127.5 pounds is the lake record. If it's yeah. not the lake, then it's the, then it's the national record. Um, blue cat, huge fish. Yeah, it is. To say that I was undergunned on that would be an understatement because the biggest fish I've ever caught was a mid-40s flathead. So when you're throwing out the opportunity to catch something two to three times that size, it's, it's really hard to comprehend. But we did our best, got basically tow truck cable for <laughs> fish in line and uh, got some of the best tackle in the industry. And we set off. It was me, Brandon, and my best friend, I guess I could consider him family, Taylor Richards. And we all three went off. There was another group from around here that, that also trailed with us down there that were also fishing it. We got down there, and it was, it was just poor conditions, but that's fishing. It was interesting to see. See, we, we grew up fishing on rivers here. You know, you always know where the current's coming from. You always know in the deep water, then you'll find them up on mud flats or on brush. There's only so many places catfish in general like to hide, especially in a body of water with current or powerful current like a river. And uh, we we got down there and it was just impossible, it felt. So we went to the captain's meeting and they explained the rules to us. They also explained that DNR basically told them to not expect a, a high number of weigh-ins and a high number of fish. They they knew they had a uh, an excessive amount of rain the lake had come up like two or three foot it, it was going to be tough fishing and it proved to be we caught one fish pre-fishing and nothing during the tournament itself mm-hmm. but like i i told you there's 241 teams that actually fished the cat masters and only 90 of those teams weighed in fish so it was it was tough fishing for everybody and when like i said when you have professional guides that that's how they that's how they put food on their table that's when they're not catching fish took the sting out of it a little bit for us for not having a successful tournament weigh-in it's it's hard not only is it difficult to go down to fish a species that you're not familiar with it's also difficult to locate those fish and you know you're constantly gaining intel We're talking to other teams every time you take the boat in and out of the water uh, hey we, we tried this today what'd you guys try or, did you guys have any luck yeah we caught a few yeah it was a rough day fishing or Oh, yeah, what what were you using? Well, we were using shad. We were using skipjack. We were using guts of some type out of shad or trout, whatever. So you're constantly exchanging this intel and trying to not only further your knowledge, but if you can, be sportsmen and try to better the fishermen on the other boat, too, because that's what it's really all about. In the end, you're trying to be secretive enough to win the money. At the end of the day, it's just a bunch of guys and gals that are out there to catch fish and have a good time. And it, that's what we ended up doing. But So the, the the first day that we got down there was the easiest day that we had had that whole time. It was just put the boat in. We ran around and scanned the bottom, tried to figure out what, what depth of water the fish were in. And uh, that lake ranged anywhere from 92 feet was the deepest that we'd seen it all the way up into four and five foot shallows. And uh, so... The first day, we kind of just drove around. We found the bait wads, um, caught fresh bait, scanned the bottom, tried to see what water columns, what what depths of water these fish were most likely in, using live scope and panoptics. So for the first day, we ended up fishing mostly mud flats, four foot of water to eight ish foot of water. Okay. Which to find out, that's where the tournament winning fish was caught out of was that rain.
0: Okay, well that's good knowledge to, to take on for the next tournament.
1: Very good. Very good knowledge. You, extremely useful. And mm-hmm. one thing that we had found was that, you know, these pan optics and especially live scope through Garmin, it's a new technology. And you got to think back to cell phones. You know, everybody thought that the old Motorola track phone, that was the absolute or at least in my time, the, the Motorola track phone was the creme de la creme. It yeah. was, they would have never thought anything about the iPhone 10R that I'm streaming this with you on right now. Same thing I feel personally with Panoptics and LiveScope is that it does the trick better than anything we've ever had so far, but it's just not quite tuned enough to To be what I know it, it will be someday.
0: Yes, that's the best part about being in the early stages. Of it. You're going to have an opportunity to watch it grow over the next several years.
1: So then the the second day, we tried a different tactic. We tried to switch up our baits. We went from, we were using fresh bait the first day of the tournament, and we still stuck with that same mentality, but we went with fresh live bait. Okay. So we were catching these shad by by the hundreds, and you're only allowed a certain number a day. I think it was 200 uh, live shad a boat a day. We would catch them, use them up, go and catch more. Well, we started getting bites. And what we were starting to get bites on was the fresher, more lively stuff. And how we were tipping the hook was cutting the tails off the shad and threading the shad down the shank of an 8 circle. And what we noticed was that was what was really lighting a fire under these fish, at least in our minds, because we were starting to get bites. Which, Mm -hmm. knowing what you know now about this tournament and and our pre-fishing, how difficult it was, even getting bites was a massive, massive uptick in our mood. And finally, we ended up moving to throwing a whole live shad on, kind of hooking it through slightly behind the dorsal fin, and uh, just throwing that out there. Had we had more time, as always, and had we had a a little bit more intel, I feel strongly that we could have placed, but that's, that's always a shoulda, woulda, coulda type issue there.
0: It's understandable there. I can understand that. So now you guys had some difficulties in the beginning because you guys, because we were not our first talk. We wanted to get you guys in front of it. So you were having some boat issues?
1: Yeah. So we were having, you know, when you make a thousand mile hike from one place to another, your trailer takes on issues, your truck. You know, we, we had, it was a brand new boat and trailer and it was a, a 2017 Chevy Silverado that was pulling it. It wasn't like we were using the bare bones minimum. We had everything that we could, but inevitably you run into issues trailer trailer bearings getting hot power trim tilt on the engine some of the electronic and how they're wired he has i brandon has Eye pilot on the front of his boat for a trolling motor and basically mm-hmm. for those that don't know that's you have a remote control in your hand when you deem it necessary you hit one button and that trolling motor on the front of the boat goes up dives down into the water and it acts as a mechanical anchor. We had issue after issue with that. The the batteries weren't charging. The electronics weren't syncing up. So, you know, you have potentially $20,000 worth of electronics on this boat that you can't even use because of electrical issues. And that was just all stacking up to be uh, you know, against us. So we had to get those worked out. Thank God. It was a Arc boat that we were fishing out of and it was a Arc sponsored tournament so we had the professionals there that could explain things to us and show us the ropes and figure out inevitably figure out what these issues are that we were having and get us back up and running relatively easily the the tough part as i told you was it was happening every single day it was one issue after another as soon as we as soon as we thought that we were getting on the fish Mm -hmm. something would start messing up okay we'd have to get off the water load the boat back up get out there and get it fixed, and then try to get back out on the water.
0: Wow, that's a frustrating aspect of the whole thing because you drive all that way, spend all that money, and you're spending most of the time on dry land figuring this mess out. That's frustrating. That iPilot, though, is pretty handy because I I did some fishing earlier this October in uh, Lake Okoboji in Iowa, and... For, uh, these two guys trolled this 50 yard radius there and he just pulled up uh, crappies and such. And then it's like, then the, the, after we went back and fished the same area, we couldn't catch anything because they, <laughs> yeah. they caught all the good fish. In it. But uh, when it comes down to a large group of guys, I can understand the frustration trying to like the event there. You said 90 boats actually got uh, caught, caught something. What was the biggest fish caught?
1: I want to say, I'd actually have to go back through the, the standings, but I want to say that it was a mid 70s blue cat. Wow, it's uh, still impressive. Mid-70s pound range. Oh, it was each weigh-in day, they had a holding tank. See, when when you catch the fish and you bring them in and weigh them in, they then become property of tournament board, whoever's putting on the tournament, and mm-hmm. the local wildlife and fisheries conservation police. It becomes their property, so they do with them what they see fit. And Most of the time, most of the tournaments that I've seen, especially the big ones, they will keep most of your eater-sized fish and have a fish fry on the last day for the anglers and all the spectators. Now, the bigger fish, I would say, from your 30-pound range and up for this specific tournament, they kept in a live holding tank. Again, spreading the message of conservation and all that. The little kids were coming over, they were able to look at the fish that weighed two or three times more than they did.
2: Mm -hmm. You know,
1: you have two and three-year-olds that come running up, just happier than could be to see these monster fish, and that three-year-old might weigh Thirty pounds, in the fish in that tank. If it's a seventy-five pound fish, that's almost three times what that kid weighed. It was it was interesting to see fish that size. I had never, at least freshwater fish, I had never in my life seen them that big.
0: As for myself, no, I think the biggest blue cat I ever caught was twenty-one inches. Now it's out of the Cedar River uh, in northern Iowa. There, so there's um, I like I'm used to river fishing myself when it comes down to catfish, and my always go to was stinky chicken liver. Or a stinky chicken because they just love that and like. But the weird thing is, I was like, the best time to catch big cat is at night. It was like, like some of the biggest ones are nocturnal, and that's the only way to catch them. But when you start from your day starts at seven a.m. to three, it's like, well, a lot of the big cats are not moving as as often, especially especially when you're seeing with all that extra rain that you got because that really throws a loop in it. Because I fished, uh, well, for an example here, a couple of years ago, we had the elite. Bassmaster series here in lacrosse well at the beginning of the tournament it the the mississippi rose three feet so it it shifted everybody and so even uh kvd had difficulties actually placing he only took 34th place this is a grand champion here and he had a tough time but our issues up here is like when they're going after um smallmouth largemouth bath they have to deal with pike and she and uh uh, bowfins—they're very aggressive fish. for the frogs and such. But it's—they all had a lot of fun, and uh, that tournament Ishman roll won. But it's like I can understand that going into uh, tournament and like having this water just rising. But the thing is, they—they're fishing river. You're fishing a lake, and it's like I wouldn't know where to go after a uh, catfish in a lake, to be honest with you, because it's like that something I'm not used to myself. And like, being down there by the Rock River and, and, uh, and Sterling and such, it's like it's all rivers down there. There's not very many lakes unless you go over towards.
1: Morrison, Illinois has a lake. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, and then Shelby, Shelby, Shelby Lake has one. Too, like Shelby area has a lake too, as well.
2: Yep. So, yeah.
1: There's Lake Powerton that's got blue cats on it, in it too. It's a hydro dam cooling pond or something mm-hmm. like that. It, and we've we've gone there before, and that's that's a good time too.
0: Now, is there? What's the next? Do you guys plan on doing the next tournament in the, in the series?
1: Um, the next tournament would have been uh, Possum Kingdom, and logistically, it's just not going to add up for us three to get down there again mm-hmm. those big tournaments are difficult especially when they're far that far away from us
0: where is that at where's uh, Pop-
1: Pop- yeah. yes uh it's very very close to lake texoma it, and lake texoma borders oklahoma and texas it's i i don't know the specific region or this or the I, the specific location rather but i do know it's out by that
0: that is a, That is a trip because that's still several hundred miles away, especially with that's the seven month old and then your your six year old and a wife it's like you got to have some type of work balance there and It's supposed to still going to work as well now you we were you were messaging me this morning talking about stand place thats that was a real issue you were having uh, Can you elaborate on that because it's like I have no idea what you're talking about
1: so stand placement and I'm not going to act like I'm some professional on it because I'm not, or else I wouldn't have had issues with it this year mhm but um one thing for my 2019-2020 for my deer season, one of the issues that I was having was I was getting all these bucks in on camera, they're all nocturnal. When I say all these bucks, I had 22 different, noticeably different deer on camera, bucks on camera throughout my 2019-2020 deer season.
0: Oh, okay. I, see, I thought you were discussing more of the catfish tournament. Okay, so I will, we'll, we'll follow up with that later down the road here. Now, last year, I fished um, Lake, Oko, uh, Lake Okoboji during uh, Mother's Day weekend, and this, this is a, a big inaugural fishing for a group of guys that my dad fished with. These guys have been doing this for 15 years, and they have a consistency of at least 15 to 20 guys showing up during this five-day period. They start from Wednesday to Sunday. Well, that weekend we were there, they had a a catfish tournament. I don't know if they're going to do it again, but Lake Okoboji is not that far away. And it's a, and it's a very challenging and fun lake. It's just like, you, it's just nice things you need a bigger boat. Cause for some odd reason, this weekend is—it's weird because it's like they'll either have fantastic weather, seventy-degree weather, eighty-degree weather, or we had weather like we did last year, thirty-five-mile-an-hour winds, thirty, like forty right. degrees—the high, and like you're bundled up to the core. Um, yep. The fishing wasn't so-so. So we and like the, the, those guys, I didn't get out there until Friday or Thursday night, and then and then I fished, or no, actually I got out there Friday, fished Friday afternoon, which was the best day of them all because it was actually nice and warm outside. And uh, we didn't uh, we didn't catch much of that. And my dad my dad caught one uh, yellow bass. And it's like I looked at was like, really? We kept this the May fi- the May tri- fishing trip for these guys is just for getting out of the uh, getting out of the house, um, getting away from the wife, kids, grandkids, and just hanging out with everybody. And there's this, it's just they just drinking an awful lot of uh, whiskey or Fireball, whatever <laughs> they're going. On. It's 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 an absolute blast. And I want to roll that into your your hog hunting trip because you said you got sixteen guys that you like to like you guys to her to get together and do this big event
1: yeah so it started off uh three summers ago good buddy of mine michael holloway uh he had called me up one day and said hey um my wife just surprised me for my birthday with a hog hunt trip mm-hmm. and we talked about it you know And he goes i'd really like you to go with if you can one afford it and uh to get the time off from work i said well i've I, I don't even know where to start with hog hunting i've never done it he ended up talking me into it. We went, there was a big group of us. I think that trip was 13, 13 out of the, the 16. The feral hog issue down in the, in the Gulf South, or actually the entire South, there's enough light that's already been shed on the issues down there. But for those that don't know, they are there by the millions. Feral hogs are an extremely invasive species. And the reason that they are, pig's gestational period, basically from when it becomes fertilized to win, it has its offspring. It's three months, three weeks, and three days. When you have a growing population that grows by one th- over a third, over a third of the year, you can see how it can just balloon into an out of control species. These companies, these guide services down there, really, it's like the wild west. They let you do whatever you want, however you want to harvest these animals. You're more than welcome to try it and do it within reason. They don't want. Uh, they don't want you to to wound the animal and cause it any type of unnecessary harm or pain. Mm-hmm. You still want to make a clean ethical kill. But as long as you can do that, they could care less what you're doing. We did some research on it, we researched what the best weapons were, and that's basically any, any rifle, any high powered rifle of any type. Mm-hmm. I took a I took an AR15 chambered in two two three, and I took a 30 six Remington 700 bolt action 30 six. Other guys took AR-10s. Another friend of ours took a 6.5 Creedmoor. There were shotguns there, uh, slug guns. So we go down there, and at Monteith Ranch is the company that we go through. And the guides there, Josh, who is the ranch boss, mm-hmm. he is the nicest. When it comes to southern hospitality, Josh is the guy. It, he is the picture of what you would consider southern hospitality. Mm -hmm. He would give you your shirt off his back without knowing your name. Competitive smoker smokes (laughs) meats to say that that was the best, the best smoked meat I've ever had in my life is an understatement. There's nothing that I've even come close to comparable. And I like to eat and I like to eat good food Mm -hmm. and I like to eat his good food. But uh, we, so we got down there and they kind of explained, explained the law of the land to us. And they were the ones that were really driving home. It was, it wasn't, so much that they were there to take your money and provide a service but you could tell that that they were really bothered by this feral hog issue thirty five hundred acres of just high fence and that wasn't even the entire ranch that was just the area that they were targeting to get these feral hogs out of so that they can begin to fix that land for the exotic species that they kept inside of that high fence so they were really driving home the issue that listen this isn't a you're not we, we wouldn't we don't want you to trophy hunt for a three hundred pound boar or a you know a two hundred and fifty pound sow. We're really trying our hardest as not only a company but as a state state of Texas. We are really trying to eradicate the species. They don't have an issue with them being around. They have an issue with the damage that they cause. Feral hogs cause millions of dollars a year in damage to agricultural land and businesses. so, to say that you're going to go down there and only selectively harvest one or two of the biggest pigs, you're still going down the right path, but they want a full eradication. They had 13 guys from Northern Illinois that were ready to do that. The first day was just an absolute, it sounded like the Civil War. It was just from the second that, you could hear the drone of the drone of the side-by-side that they drop you off in. As soon as you can hear that go out of earshot and hear the bass die down in the exhaust and see it go up the other hill on the other side of the, the canyon, those pigs were already right out there. No bait, bait, corn. It it didn't matter. It was, it was like ants on an ant hill is the best way that I can describe it. And from the time that I was dropped off and could not hear or see the side-by-side that I was dropped off in, I started pulling the trigger, and it was just one after another after another. Now I've been born and raised in Illinois my entire life. When you're hunting, the most exciting hunting, when it comes to pulling the trigger that you can do, is waterfall. That's the time that you're going to get the most trigger time. That's when you're going to. That's when you're really going to be able to hone in your skills working a gun. Nothing, again, just like the catfish tournament. Nothing in my life had ever taught me. No one or nothing had taught me how to react when you know you have. 35 or 40 live targets running around in front of you. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so I just started pulling the trigger and I I had dropped quite a few of them. I think I had five the first day and that just, that was all across the board, a shooting fest out there. And it was a great time. It was cheap. I think their rates then were 450 bucks. That included lodging. And this was also back in 2016. Their rates have since changed, but that included lodging food, three square meals, three Texas-sized square meals a day, buy them some beer for those that are legal, the processing of the meat, which it, they're not processing it down into sausage or pork chops or anything like that. They're processing it down in a, by quartering it
2: and skinning it
1: for you. But it was, it was a great time, and it really opened our eyes up from a conservationist standpoint why it's imperative that we don't let the population get up into northern illinois or the midwest area and they they already have they've already made it up here um when you call a deer in in illinois now to report a tag they ask you how many feral hogs you've seen they also ask you how many wild turkeys how many bobcats things of that nature but feral hogs is on that list because they're wanting to keep an eye on it too because Mm -hmm. conservationists And conservation officers understand that once a handful of them get in here, it's a matter of time before it's a a real issue like what the South is experiencing. Yes,
0: I can completely agree with that because Wisconsin just had their first announcement of feral hogs someplace here. The DNR has not released any more details on where some of the sightings have been because they don't want to... Uh, they want to keep an, an eye on it and kind of control it yourself because they don't want it to turn it into a problem. And so that's like so where they're kind of keeping it uh, tight group, which I can understand, but allows them to figure out what they can do and maybe utilize the population in that area. It's like, Hey, we're all the guys that have to go hog hunting. Like let's, let's get a bunch of people to take care of it. Cause what I, I really like uh, Missouri's plan of conservation because they don't allow hunting season. It's only trap only. You have to be a contractor to do it. But, I think it's a very smart strategy from it because this way then it it has an opportunity to actually get lower because it's like with hunting, you allow the chance for profit. When you have profit, then it's like they're not going to kill everything off that's right unless you have like an outfit like yourself where they have this beautiful land they want to cultivate for better product it's just i want that's what they want to do but it's all high fenced down missouri and iowa and illinois it's all very wide open and stuff like that and it's like i would hate to hit a big pig like that because it's like i've explained people like what you explained to me like how fast they grow and like if anybody wants to do more research into it you can just look at um books from steve ranella his podcast his tv show about how it all breaks down because it's like the same thing that's in russia the same thing here same and if you ever meet a pig that's small is because it's underfed essentially because you just get right married. that's what it's what's kind of helped iowa from having overrun with them but then uh we had ted nugent over in michigan he brought him up there for his ranch and then it's like but then, then it started to expand out in michigan and it's so unique in how fast this creature knows because once a creature understand once a pig knows it's on its own everything starts changing really rapidly the tusks get longer the hair gets longer the, the meat gets changes color you know it's a very very slippery slope and it's like we get them up here in like wisconsin minnesota iowa it's going to definitely put a lot of damage into the crop here especially when you have soybean and corn here and a lot of our product is all throughout the world so it's like we got to maintain that and like and then the insurance companies are going to hate it because you hit a 400 or 500 pound pig in your car that that's that's a hearse right right there and it's like it's such a a valuable thing. So it's like, if those who are listening to this podcast, you see them, let the DNR know immediately. And here in Wisconsin, it's open season on them. So you see them, you shoot them. And it's like, but the first, first thing I do is make a phone call to the DNR, let them know, hey, I got hogs out here. Second call is like, hey, guys, let's go hunting. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, we would hate to have, it, especially if they get into the town here, because lacrosse sits right on the Mississippi. And we've had bears in town here. And so it's like we and it's like we have bears in here. I hate to see having hogs in here because we live right next. We're right on the Mississippi, so it's like if, it, if the Mississippi freezes over, that's just easy pathway to get through in and out. We have a lot of parks in this area, a lot of bluffs and such. But um, the nice thing is we do have an abundance of wolves, bears, bobcats, mountain lions. Because the reason why that's because that Alicia's grandpa that lives over in Deer Grove so last year, two years ago, had a friend of his give him a call and they had this pack of coyotes but they had one wolf in it from up north coming on down so he didn't shoot it he called some of the younger guys because it's like hey, he must have had something going on they went not took care of the situation there but they said that like, they've had an increase of links there and what he says like they're every season now i guess that's in your in your guys's northern area there those tags get bought out by non-hunters so now they just they just produce more of them
1: yeah see now out in montana that you brought up the wolf issue around here there was I had heard reports and I had also read documentation that was true that years back DNR around the northern Illinois region had released a small pack of sterilized wolves. They were all they all had tracking collars. They were all sterilized as I said, so they were spayed and neutered. And they were released. I forget what they were trying to control with them. I think it was the deer population. What's what's interesting to note about wolves is that they are not a Labrador retriever. They are not a coyote. If, if you've ever seen a wolf in person, you understand that, that it might be a dog, but it is a different animal. Nature and time has honed its skills to be an apex predator. And you hear stories of Steve Rinella tell stories about wolf packs. If you guys have ever listened to John Dudley's podcast uh, with Knock on Archery, he talks extensively about how important it is to maintain and control the wolf population that reminded me of when they had released those that sterile pack of wolves around here was it is interesting that that was a tactic that DNR was willing to use granted that yes they were sterilized and they had tracking systems on them but to understand that a creature that is specifically bred to kill who is an apex predator miles past anything that we have around here. To think that that was released around heres is, it's is—it's—it's frightening, especially with people that have dogs, kids running around. It's in an area that you're not used to them and the culture isn't there. That i The best way that I can describe it is I was stationed in the Gulf South when I was in the military. And in the Gulf South, they have a whole bunch of poisonous reptiles. From Northern Illinois, the only thing that we have to really worry about is a couple of water snakes. Mm-hmm. If you see one, you get out of the water and going down there where you're surrounded by them. We had rattlesnakes and a couple other species of snakes that were poisonous around us. It's different to get used to. Likewise, with having wolves around here, it would be something difficult to get used to, not only experiencing seeing them or maybe how they hunt, but also the the fear of being hunted.
0: But my eye on out here, because it's like, I know there's some legislation that they want to open up a wolf control plan for Minnesota, Wisconsin and Wyoming, I guess. Randy Newberg could discuss it because he was all on board back in the 90s about bringing them back to a manageable level. But then it's like, then he saw the real darkness of the, the left starting from like the seventies and eighties all the way up today, a lot of our culture that we introduced our kids to is a lot of talking animals. So they have this different perception from it and trying to bring them into today's standards of hunting. Because, like, you and I, I've grown up around hunting for, for whitetail, cottontail, pheasant, squirrel, all that fun stuff. We had to show these millennials a new way of looking at it And I think that's why food has been a very positive thing. I try to avoid a lot of gripping grins. I like to find stories. And, and when I have people submit their stuff to me, it's like I want to know about the story behind it because that's what will bring down the garden. Knock on what I've had a very nice community that have grown that really are, are, are open to ans- asking questions, especially about bear hunting. Cause here in Wisconsin, we have this wolf population that, that was not reintroduced. They just came across the frozen tundra and they came down here. What's well, also pushed the big cats and the bears down here. I mean, we've had bears in Iowa, Northern Illinois. It's their original landscape. Is, we're not used to seeing them anymore. It's one of the things where we have to try to work with them. Um, but anyways, like moving into like you know, predator control, how do you guys handle your predator control down there in northern Illinois?
1: The main way that we handle it is basically if you see a coyote, try your best to harvest it. Mm-hmm. The issue isn't necessarily as rabid and rampant as it is in other states, but I did read potentially that a coyote, especially a breeding pair of coyotes, can eat upwards of three deer a week per. So that's six deer per breeding couple or breeding pair of deer that they're taking out of our population of the deer herd. When it comes to actually controlling that, um, we're pretty proactive about calling, about the use of calls. Trapping isn't necessarily a big thing up here. Um, It's very hard with the – we don't have main corridors, and that's what makes travel corridors for coyotes. It's all farm ground up here, bone-flat farm ground. Mm-hmm. So I'm f-
0: which I'm familiar with, unless you have the irrigation ditches too, so, which I've seen because i re- I think that's a very popular one because I know my father in law talks about it and his dad talks about like how they maximize that, and they also use dogs as well. They found that to be yeah. a very efficient way, but it's like it's it's tough to deal with the antis because it's like they don't quite grasp and like why hunters utilize it because it's it's an effective means, and it's like it's up until their antis experience something bad happening until they don't quite guess why we we, we do this. Step down from their, the wolves and they kill to eat too as well, but they're also kind of serial predators of nature. They just, they kill to eat. They just kill for fun too as well.
1: Yes. And it's, it's, they're a damaging species, not only the valued species that we harvest, deer, rabbits, pheasants. There was just a reported case in Sterling, Illinois, where there was a pack of coyotes that were moving into town. Actually, Taylor Richards, uh, one of my fishing partners, his mom had just posted on social media the other day that she lives in town in Sterling a town of 10,000 plus people mm-hmm. and had si- uh, spotted, seen and heard a pack of coyotes within yards of her house in town. Now, there is an argument to say that we're encroaching on their space, but through conservation and through the means of trapping, using dogs, working these drainage ditches, conservation officers keep an eye on that stuff. And when they would see that, co- that the population of coyotes was to go too far down, possibly be dangerous to the rest of the population and keeping a balance in the ecosystem, they would say something about it. Conservation, for the most part, in my experience, the natural resources that we have around us to thrive. Now, as hunters, we also have to keep an eye on this. Through trapping and using the dogs, that's, those are two very successful tactics that we use up here. Mm-hmm. And I've seen them work time and time again.
0: That's very true. And here, even up here in Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, theres I'm sure in, in, in Illinois as well, but we, they do tournaments as well. There's like there's a tournament this weekend that they yep. have where they do this. Like, and that's a fantastic way to – and uh, there was legislation last year that were brought into that they wanted to uh, remove competition such as this. Well, the thing is, the, based off the writing from the antis, is that it would eliminate fishing – it because the way because it would be it would affect right. all wildlife inspired by coyotes. But the way they wrote it was to go after fishing and coyotes and deer and all that fun stuff. And it's like ah, that's that's too much tax money right there. And it's like unfortunately, your group doesn't contribute enough just to, to conservation.
1: You know, what's what's interesting to keep in mind in a subject like this is when when people have especially sponsored tournaments like the one like the Cat Masters, how CR could sponsor that. A certain portion of those funds they had accrued over $115,000 for payouts. They had accrued so much money for the Catmasters that they had actually changed the rules. It was a 1st through 10th place payout originally, and they ended up paying 1st through 16th. The important thing to keep in mind is that a big portion of that money is going back into conservation. So these tournament series where you're seeing people rip out some world record fish, possibly, out of these fisheries, coyote hunting tournaments... Uh, There's actually a squirrel hunting tournament today in Milledgeville, Illinois, that I had the opportunity to be in, turned it down. I had a bad run at it last year. A certain portion of that money is being turned back into conservation. The argument for the left would be if not us, the hunters, who would it be? Where would those funds come from? Farmers aren't going out of their way to give back to conservation. Not saying that they're against conservation, they're there to grow a crop to feed America. And then inevitably gain funds to feed themselves. Iron workers, construction workers, office workers, nurses, doctors, school teachers, people working at McDonald's. None of their funds are going to conservation. All of their tax money, for the most part, is going to a state and local level for uh, law enforcement, fire, ne- fire and EMS, the roadways, signage, curb, sidewalk maintenance. Very, 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 uh, a minuscule, fractional, a decimal amount of that money that comes out of your paycheck is going to conservation. So conservation leans on tournament series for a bonus. That's what it is. It's a bonus to not only them, but to the message that they're trying to spread into this ecosystem. The ecosystem is what's important to keep in mind. And there was a documentary made on it. It's called How the Wolves Saved Yellowstone. Or how the wolves saved the river, and it was about a doc- it was a documentation on how wolves were placed back into the ecosystem in Yellowstone National park and are you familiar with this? Yes, because
0: I just got to listen to a Steve Renella podcast. We were talking about how they how the wolves came in and introduced into the population again, but it, how it, it curved some of the elk and the white tail the mules and stuff and and bison as well, but it 's like it allowed for regrowth as on top of it, because you have all these big vegetarians like going after all this vegetation, it's like it's it's eating away a lot of the wildflowers and the vegetation and trees, and it's like it doesn't have a chance for it to replenish. Well, now it's like adding them back to the landscape, but actually created this this unique balance because now it's like the, the bees went, up, butterflies came back, uh, bird populations came through because it's like as based off trail camps, we found out that deer and, and elk and other uh, like they'll actually eat birds which is weird yeah. but if it wasn't for trail camps you couldn't believe it <laughs>
1: yeah. circling back on that how they were able to do that was through partially through hunters selling tags uh, tag revenue is a major portion of their of their income now a lot of that was through the national park service i will say most of their funds were accrued through yellowstone's entrance fees and um, mm-hmm. camping merchandise sales all a a very large portion of how they were able to reintroduce those wolves into the ecosystem and all the legalities and sourcing the wolves, the care for them. A lot of that was funded through the park. But a major portion of that was funded through tag sales for bison in the area. And the same thing can be said about the ecosystems local to us in the Midwest and the ecosystems down south in Louisiana. New Orleans, Louisiana, and the the area around there is world-renowned for its waterfowl hunting. The Duck Dynasty, for example, a lot of those waterways down there are being meticulously controlled. I, have, I was stationed just south of New Orleans, Louisiana, and I have a lot of friends in the Gulf South area, locals to the Gulf South area. A lot of how they maintain their waterways to keep this migrating population coming back every year is through conservation it's through funds it's through conservation stopping boats and doing boat inspections making sure that you're not leaking a bunch of oil back into the water and just really stringent tight reins on how we how we are damaging and how they can change us or keep us from damaging the waterways down there conservation is a huge aspect of this country and this world. Very few people left-leaning especially have, in my eyes, have a very good argument against it. Hunters are the main source of income for why you see deer frolicking through the meadow, bison roaming these ranges that they have for hundreds of thousands of years, why you can go out to private land and see pronghorn out in Colorado, see pronghorn running across fields and stuff why you can see bighorn sheep up in the mountains. It's mostly due to tag sales and hunter license sales. Mm-hmm. Hunters are conservationists at the at the very highest level, and through that we'll be able to be able to maintain the ecosystems that we have today.
0: Funny how you mentioned the South because Hal herrig he runs the uh, BHA's podcast, and he's from the area. He's from Alabama, but he talks about like how there's several companies that are control of the waterways and so on. And there's way, there's a, he's had a couple of people on that are biologists and part of the EPA that are trying to fight these big companies because they're polluting the area. And it's like, I have a, I have friends down the South too as well in Alabama. And it's like, and it's a they, it's like you don't see it in the paper because there's a lot of money going around, but it's like, it is a, it is a big issue with that. Cause it's like, you're right. There's there's a particular bird that is like almost in, in extinction down there that Hal Herrig was mentioning. It's it's because of loss of habitat and stuff like that. Now you you wanna bring up some public land uh topics. What did you want to discuss about the public lands?
1: I was recently I recently had a conversation with a friend of mine that it was brought up the fact that a lot of the public land around here and I, a lot of the public land around here was accrued from old farms. Some of the land is actually left to Illinois. Wildlife uh, management groups, DNR, through the loss of an estate. So, if a farmer dies or the, the farm was left to his wife, they don't have any kids, the wife can write down in her will that she would like a certain portion of or all of their farmland to be allocated over to public land for hunting. Now, this, is a, this has happened twice in my lifetime that I've seen a huge portion of land donated and turned into public land. In Walnut, Illinois, there was, where your wife is from, there is a, I want to say, I can't remember if it was a strip mine or a gravel quarry. I think it was a gravel quarry. It was turned into state land. I ice fish it every year. I mushroom hunt for morale mushrooms all around it, all around the, um, the lakes. And it's a great fishery. It's a great resource for kids, for families, for outdoorsmen to get out and experience what this country has to, to, has to offer. And it was allocated through through a woman passing. She had donated it to the state of Illinois. The issue with the public lands that I'm seeing is that they're being abused. Abused in a fashion that there's massive amounts of litter. Guys and gals coming in that maybe they don't have a full understanding of the the, the culture they're in and also wildlife around. But one thing that I've seen this year that really bothered me that that I'm specifically wanting to talk about, is that I had seen a tree get trimmed, several trees actually, get trimmed back on public ground for, a hanging, for the purpose of hanging a tree stand. We have to understand that there is very little, when you, when you look at the greater scope of how many acres there are in America and, or the contiguous United States, versus how many acres of public land there are, it's not a direct trend. It's not a one-for-one. One. It's more like a one-for-one one million. When you have 2,500 acres, you have to take care of that 2,500 acres of public ground to hunt on. And when we're seeing trees get destroyed, it was put out by our local conservation that they're considering not allowing people to use tree stands anymore and only ground-blind hunt.
0: Oh, wow. That's a, that's a drastic change right there. We just got yeah. permission here, I think it was two years ago, three years ago here in Wisconsin, where you can leave your stand up overnight and for the longest time was illegal.
1: We have permission to leave it up for the full season here, but to the point of you have to take it down after the season's done. You can't leave it up year long. They don't want these, your tree stand to start rusting, poisoning, the potentially poisoning the tree, killing the tree off, bringing in an invasive, or a, uh, man, the, the term evades me, a ravaginous beetle, box beetle, I believe it is, that comes yes. in. Of pines.
0: Yeah, we've had we've had an outbreak over the last two three years here in Lacrosse where they've gone through. They've surveyed the trees, and it's like taking out trees all across the board. But it's like if you want that tree replaced, you're looking. If you don't replace it on your own, it'll take you up like four or five years to get that one tree to get replaced in your yard.
1: They, they don't just come in in these little packs. It's when they when they attack one tree, or specifically when they get the taste of one specific species of tree, like pine, mm-hmm. they will they will destroy all the pines in that area. From my understanding of it, I don't know if that's completely accurate, but from what I've noticed. And on these public, on these public lands, when these guys are just hacking off all these limbs and they're killing them, you're creating a, a corridor for these beetles to come in and devastate, and it's, it's a trickle-down effect from the top down. It might not be that big of a deal to hack off the, the entire top of one pin oak so you can hang a tree stand up there and look like you're on a tripod stand, but what it turns into is not only that one pin oak, but the 500 pin oaks around it will be completely decimated by these beetles. We have to take care of what we have on these public grounds. If you see trash, pick it up. Get in contact with your local DNR. Back to the point of a lot of the ground that we have was donated by farmers. There's whole tractors, combine systems, threshing systems that are out on some of our public lands around here that are rotting away. They're they're turning back into the, into the earth inevitably, but some of these old rubber tires that, we, that that you see around here, when it floods, we get all of the trash from the river into onto the grounds. We need to take care of what we have. And it, it only takes one person to stand up and create a program. It takes a group of people to go in there and make it happen. But it takes us as hunters, and or maybe not even necessarily hunters, but people that plan, intend to use the public, public grounds that we have, we need to come together and start cleaning these places up. It's it's not an issue. It's not a crippling issue as of yet, but it can easily turn into it. And with less and less land being allocated each year, We have to take care of what we have and prove that we can take care of what we have before it's taken from us.
0: You are exactly right. That's why um, BHA, they have the chapters all across. I mean, Illinois has been blowing up. Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin is. It's like I subscribe to ours up here in that they do multiple cleanups throughout the year and they don't have like five, ten, 10 volunteers. They have 20 to 50 volunteers show up and they just go through and they clean up the whole entire area. And the company I work for here in town, for every 30 hours you work you get 250 bucks to go to any particular charity you want to go to that's and so great. it's like it's it's that's how they encourage the Community growth, and it's like there's several of us that are belong to the chapter that go out to these things and, and enjoy the outdoors and hanging out with people, and it's just fun meeting uh, TJ Haugi and Bryce, and and these these are some of the, the big wigs are in BHA there for Wisconsin's chapter. So it's like for those who in Illinois, I recommend reaching out to those guys, and it's like they're all about getting out. There. Out west, it's a huge following, but now it's like a slowly creeping into the east, and where it's like where they have the least amount of public land here, in Wisconsin. About I think it was seventeen or sixteen, the state, the uh, university wanted to jump in and take some of that land, and they want to allocate funds for uh, uh, scholarships, and it, and it got it got turned down real quick, real real quick. And now it's like we have Evers in office is our newest one. And we're trying to work with them as best we can. But it's like he's very anti-hunting, very anti-gun. What's going, yes. on in Vir- what's going on in Virginia is just a stepping stone. I mean, here in Wisconsin, yes. we already have two A sanctuaries. And the thing is, it's not going after criminals. It's going after law-abiding citizens. Anybody that recognizes this from history, it's the exact same thing Not uh, Hitler did. And Mao Tung and uh, the, the powers to be in, in Venezuela and Brazil. It's, it's a slippery soap, and it's like I've been paying attention to what's going on out there in Virginia, and it's like they want to turn everything into felonies. I mean, they want to do everything that's possible. I mean, Bloomberg is doing a hell of a job for it. It's like we have the left going after our, our guns, and we even have the right going after public lands because they see that as money, and they see it as, as a revenue yes. service. I hate to say it, but Trump's doing a pretty bad job with the EPA, but I'm not sure if it's all him, though. I mean, there's a lot of money and power in the office that it's like he's only there for four years. There's been people there for 40 years. Are, yeah. They're causing a problem there too. So, and it's like my father-in-law, uh, Alicia's stepdad. he works for the EPA and he's seen the powers of what they restricted because of what they could do five years ago, 10 years ago, they can't do today because of different influences. You guys live in Illinois. I mean, you're the most corrupt state in the, in the union, you know,
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> and it's like, I, it's like for those who live there, bra- bravo, but my dad lived in Mendota and stuff like that. And it's like the taxes, he get pulled out and it's like, he's lucky to be part of the union. And it's like the union there in Illinois is like, you need to be a union in Illinois because otherwise you will get screwed. Getting back to the land allocations and stuff like that too. It's like, uh, I know Iowa here, I think it was Eighteen, I think they did. They on their their thing booklet. They put on there. They purchased like twenty five thousand acres. Like that's fantastic. And then yeah. the cool thing is, is, like when you go out west in Iowa, you see a lot more public land access over here in the east, uh, eastern side around the Mississippi. Not so much because it's prime time. I mean, some of the biggest world class bucks have been shot from Decorah all the way down to Keokuk, Iowa and then what the dnr has done in wisconsin they have uh farm management land and uh forest management land farm management land is where they, you can get tax dollars to help avoid erosion and, stuff like that. and the, the new farm bill that's coming out i was listening to hal Herrig and the president of pheasants forever because pheasants forever is uh headquarters is in minnesota of all places yeah. you wouldn't you'd figure it'd be in iowa or south dakota but um they're talking about this new farm bill. It's like they're offering a lot of different services for, for tax, different tax breaks. You can get paid for it. They get, they can even get paid uh, market value in some areas too, but they show you ways to get um, different seeds and so like that to rebuild uh, grouse and whitetail, and all that fun stuff. So it's a great thing for those who are listening to this to get into it and read this new farm bill. Cause like granted the farm bill is like, I don't know, a couple thousand pages, but there are so many earmarks in, but there is some real true value to the, the the outdoors, and it's like it's because of the lobbying from bHA and some and pheasants forever and Rocky Mountain and Elk Foundation, because of these guys we we have rebuilding. I mean here in Wisconsin, we had the first hunting season last year for elk, and it was the first time in almost a century since we had a hunting season on elk That's great, yeah, and so it's a, just a fantastic thing. it's like we're, we're making strides, but we keep on reproducing humans,
1: yeah. It's overpopulation's an issue, period. Yeah. That's an in, that's an inevitable truth. Yes, that, uh, we will keep going until we go to another planet. I guess. Yeah.
0: So you were bringing about you had some you have something pulling at your heartstrings about fishing and fisheries and daily limits.
1: Fishing limits. I'm I'm talking about there, at least in my area, Illinois, Iowa and Missouri, Wisconsin, Indiana, they're very stringent on all of your trophy species. Crappie, walleye, muskie, trout, uh, striped bass, hybrid striped bass, white bass, all mm-hmm. of your trophy species have a, a day, not only a daily limit but a size limit uh, um, on them. Now, a couple years back, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but we had a pretty big fish kill. There was a, a, a train that had rolled over into the river. It was carrying ethanol. And it had spilled out hundreds of thousands of gallons of ethanol into our river and it had decimated the catfish population, all, all species uh, in our river. It had not necessarily wiped them out, but at the time it had created a massive pocket of uh, dead space in our river. Since then, obviously it's a river, so the fish from up top will flow down below. It did repopulate relatively easily, but the sizes that we had before it, it was very common to, to fill up a stringer full of catfish in the lower dam here in uh, Rock Falls in Sterling, Illinois, on the Rock River. It was very common to fill up a stringer full of fish, four or six five, six-pound fish, catfish. Okay. Now you are, you are pushing to get three or four of those on your stringer a day or in your live well a day. I, I want to bring light to this because it's, it's a very important topic. Catfishing never was really a big thing back in the day unless unless you were born and raised on it the what you always heard that were big were like the tarpon rodeos down south or the bass masters classic Mm -hmm. um crappie fishing had when i was growing up crappie tournaments had really started to to see an uptick in their popularity but catfishing tournaments were going on but they didn't have any high payouts especially forty thousand dollar payouts like they do now and more circling back it with with the increase in catfishing popularity I see it fit to put not only a daily limit, but also a size limit on these fish. And I I think I, I I'm no professional when it comes to justifying what sizes should be left alone. But definitely the bigger fish. Your 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 trophy sized catfish of channel catfish will say of five to six pounds and more. That's your big breeding population. Those are the genetics they've mm-hmm. they've gotten this far in life in that river. Those are the genetics that you want to pass on, and also a, a, a limit on the length, no, no smaller than 12 inches, so that those fish have a chance to take off. When that, fit, when that fish kill happened, when that ethanol came floating down our river, it wiped out that big, large breeding population of those five, six, eight plus pound fish, along with the flathead population. It was nothing back in the day to catch a 20 or 30 or 40-pound flathead. Now, the 40s were definitely more rare than the 20s and 30s. Now, your average is between 5 to 12 pounds, I would say. To restore that particular ecosystem and get this back up to the fishery that it was before, we need to implement something like that. We need to implement weight restrictions, length restrictions, try try to rebuild the fisheries, not only this fishery, but others. Mm-hmm. into what they were before I, some of these trout streams i guess what what really lit a fire under me was some of these trout streams that you see out west their ecosystems are so well maintained and not only by the locals but also local conservation they're so well maintained that there is a daily limit of one or two uh, a size limit of no smaller than 12 inches no larger than 25 inches you try to you try to target those sized fish to try and build up your fishery, and there's not so much of an emphasis put on what some would consider the trash fish, catfish, carp. People don't understand that carp play an extremely important role in a well-balanced ecosystem. Carp are recommended, when people are building these, these massive bass ponds, carp are an integral part of keeping that ecosystem healthy. And there's no limit on them here. We don't necessarily have an issue with that, as we do see with catfish and flathead. For For us to get back to where we were at a local level here in the Whiteside County or the Rock River area, the Sauk Valley Nation, we need to implement some type of a, a limit like that.
0: On the Illinois River, uh, over by mainland towards Peoria, they had, they had a big kill-off for Asian carp, the yellow ones. Those that's what we want to see because those the the, the way their mouths focus, the way they clean up the the soil and the re re fertilize everything. That's vital, especially when it comes down to if you want to get down to a smaller level. When you get down to mussels and clams, because like Mississippi and stuff like that used to be known for their hatcheries for um, for clams, and now it's like it's it's nothing there. But then again, it's a highly trafficked area, a lot of pollution in it, and so it makes things a little bit difficult to clean up. In uh, Iowa and Minnesota, we haven't had any major spills. Knock on wood starting to look at more ways of putting water back into the land because it's like we spent the last hundred years trying to pull water off the land now i want to put it back in and it's like yeah. i'm just i was thinking to myself it's like we get all the snow all this stuff right here but we need to figure out ways to dam off areas but also to allow backfill to flow out towards omaha and texas and arizona like how can we direct some of this water to them when they're in a drought scenario, too, because like we've had all those fires in California. We could have possibly have another dust bowl or fires in Kansas and Oklahoma, right. Texas, Arizona, and it'd be nice. Like, How can we shift some of that water over there? Because last year we had so much flooding in Nebraska. It's like you couldn't get around um, I-80 or I-25, depending yeah. on where we're at because it, so, it was so bad. It's like divert some of that over there. And it's like the only downside is very expensive. Well, some DNRs in some states have utilized uh, beavers. To, and it saves millions really? of dollars yeah to dam up certain areas to allow water to flow in different areas for years we've been trying to get off the water off the land you, you got to listen to the most recent one it dropped on uh, february 4th with hal harrig and uh howard vincent how they want to do that and they're talking about iowa pacific about the des moines river and uh the, i can't remember the name of the, one of the one of the bigger swamps there in the area but that's it's a that's a good idea like how can we move some of this water around to uh, hydrate some of the areas, especially when they're in a severe drought. But right now we've had such an abundance of it that our crop products or crop value is so low because we have, we're producing so much.
1: Yeah. And a lot of that's being shipped overseas, which is a whole nother conversation in itself. But that's, that's a very interesting point that you made is that we've spent, farmers have spent a majority of their lifetimes and, and the majority of this country's lifetime trying to figure out how to shed water off of the land so that they can get in there and uh, harvest their crops in the, in, the sp- in the fall and plant in the spring through da- drainage ditches and drain tiles and stuff. And it, it is an interesting thought to maybe direct some of that water over to uh, less, less moist environments, less mm-hmm. environments that have less rainfall year. That is a very interesting subject.
0: Now, I, I, one thing, it's like, I, I was looking through your, your, some of your topics we want to talk about. Tips and tricks about getting permissions on private lands. What are some of your go-tos?
1: This is my favorite. So, all <laughs> it comes down to is just being a good person. Try your hardest to be a good person. Now, this year in particular, my daughter turned uh, six in May, my oldest. And she had really shown an interest in wanting to get out and do some hunting with me back to the public land thing i don't necessarily want to take her out there during the um, shotgun seasons because there is a relatively high population of people in the woods at that time especially in the little pockets that we have here so i i set out this year to try and get some private land okay plant my feet in like i said at the beginning i have a seven month old daughter we didn't have a lot of money to throw towards a lease, especially with the baby coming into the world. We mm-hmm. wanted to make sure that we had that covered first before I go playing around in the woods with a pocket full of money. You know, I went out and I got Onyx Maps. I don't know if anybody's familiar with it, but it is a it's huge the best tool
0: in the world. Yeah. It is
1: absolutely not only for you to be more successful, but for, in in harvesting an animal, but for you to be more legal. I yes. can I can say beyond a doubt, and with not feeling bad about it at all, I have trespassed before. Obviously, not knowingly. But with an app like OnX, it's accurate to within a couple of feet, I believe. And it, it's, it's a game changer. You can pull that thing right on airplane mode, pull it right out of your, I'm not sponsored by them or anything, but I'm, <laughs> just, I'm merely, I'm spreading the word because it is a tool that everybody needs to use, especially if you plan on walking out into public land or even private land for that matter. One of the benefits of it is that it shows landowners' names. Gaining, public, or gaining private land comes down, in my eyes, to five steps. Figure out where you want to hunt. Step one, figure out what you want to hunt. Get a game plan together on how you're going. What, what's your sales pitch to these people that, that you're searching out, that, that you're reaching out to them to want to try and hunt on their property? what's your game plan? What are you What are you going to do? What are you going to say to them? Are you going to say, hi, my name's Chad Anderson. I'd like to have permission on your property. Are you saying, hey, my name's Chad Anderson. Do you guys like venison, deer meat? Do you guys like rabbits or pheasant or anything like that? And if they respond back to you with a yes, well, how about you give me the opportunity to provide you with a little bit of that this year and harvest a few animals off of your property? Are you okay with that? Are you having issues with Beavers, maybe. Are you having issues with beavers? Do you do you have a groundhog issue out here? Do the squirrels annoy you? Uh, there's there's a, a a plethora of different sales pitches that you can provide the farmers or the landowners with. The final two things are necessarily how you're going to hunt and who you're going to hunt with. So, how you're going to hunt? Are you a bow hunter? Are you a gun hunter? Are you a trapper? How do you plan on harvesting these animals that you're set out to harvest? If you're a bow hunter, bow hunting is obviously uh, a much quieter, uh, detailed, delicate game than gun hunting. You're trying to pull an animal into, you know, a comfortable yardage for me is under 40 yards. So 40 yards, I can pull back my bow and my setup, and I can accurately hit an an apple or a, a heart a heart shot at 40 yards with my bow. Gun hunting, I have a slug gun that I can reach out and tickle something at 150 yards with. So what what... What do you plan on using? And then finally, who do you plan on hunting with? Now, my dad is a um, great man, but he has gone through some health issues, health issues that keep him from walking a lot. When you're looking at the layouts, you know, there's, there's nothing more useless than, than getting property that, let's say that you're um, squirrel hunting. There's nothing more useless than going out and getting property that doesn't have any trees on it. Same thing with if you're hunting with somebody that has some type of a health issue or a a crippling disease, or maybe they are wheelchair bound. There's nothing more useless than getting property that is only accessed by foot. That's a mile walk in. So those, those five things you need to take in it. You really need to think hard about them, get it dialed in, get a get a region dialed in of where you want to hunt, what you want to hunt, who you're hunting with, what you're hunting with. And then finally your sales pitch this year, I picked up almost 700 acres through a damn good sales pitch. Bravo. Thank you. And through through doing that, how I did it and how I had success was I offered my time and services. I offered the farmer who um, not only does row crop, but also has horses, some livestock. I offered my time and services to him. And that was my foot in the door with him. Do you? He, he bails hay also. I went out there and I helped him bale hay. And it was brought up in conversation that I'm an outdoorsman, I'm a hunter. My sales pitch to him was, you know, how about if you let me hunt your 700 acres of prime land, and in turn, I'll come out here and you will not have to pay me for another hour of labor. You call me whenever you need me. If you need me to fix fence, you need me to bale hay, you need me to shovel cow crap, you need me to cut up a tree that fell down, just feed feed your critters whatever you need i'm here but in return my sales pitches to you that that i'll be able to, to hunt your property and he went for it and that has worked time and time again for a lot of other people and yeah. it's just being it's just being personable and you will you will eventually run across another conservationist that just so happens to own a lot of acreage and most of the time when you run across those guys they're like yeah i want you to go out there and enjoy what my land has to provide for your family
2: mm-hmm. a
1: lot of times those are already taken up by somebody. When you come across somebody that has a vacant amount of land that nobody is currently hunting, you need to jump on it. Take advantage of the land, take advantage of the property, but be prepared to give your sales pitch, to sell yourself, sell what you're wanting to do, your message. The fact that you're not going to go in there and tear up your prop- their property. You'll have your tree stands down and out by the end of season and up at the beginning. You'll help them with anything that they need. And in turn, I've even offered meat to people. That's how I've been successful with private land accruement this year. And it's, I, I'd like to spread the message on that and have, maybe help people get an idea of where they need to go and how they need to attack it on their end.
0: Bravo. I mean, I, I, that's how I do it too. When I moved, first moved back southeastern Minnesota, I got invited onto this property to hunt and stuff like that through the group of guys. Those guys didn't do anything to help out the farmer. And so what I would do is that in the spring, and stuff, like my friend and I would go out there, and we'd go out there in March, April, May, and we'd go out there, and we'd, just like, we'd, we'd bring a chainsaw with us, and we'd go out there. If we saw a fence that broke, we just did it. And we'd take pictures of before and after. So I'm like, well, this is what we did, and do you like it? If not, we can always go back and change it. And But it was like we came across this, we cut this down, we piled up the wood, because there's a lot of times like... Uh, Trees would blow over and such, and we'd go out yes. there and we'd cut them up because, like, he would need to get his uh, tractor or whatever. We need to get back into this dirt deep area because the back of his property was over a mile and a half deep. But it's like to get there, it's all on grassland. We need to maintain this for him so we can get out there to. So if he, something bad happens, somebody can get out there to pull him out or whatever the may situation situation may be. And also mending his fences. Then on top of the two, he also had two natural springs. There's a couple times where we saw these massive logs laid down. And they're blocked. He hates the DNR because the DNR would just walk on his property without even letting him know they're out there. So what we do is like, well, we saw this log. We cut him up. We moved this up. It's like, it's like thank you. Because now it doesn't give the DNR a reason to come on my property. Because right. spring, spring fed other areas. Known for trout fishing, the area I used to hunt. There's this one guy that just had this know-it-all attitude and just turned me off. It's like, I didn't want to hunt out there. So it's like, basically, it's a waiting game. I got to wait for him to kick the bucket so I can go back out there and hunt. Because we all know those know-it-all type of people that just, oh, have yeah. their, like they, you, you, they can do no wrong, just say everything correct. So needless to say, it's like, I don't hunt out there. Neither does my best friend that, uh, that got me on the property. He doesn't hunt with them anymore either. So it's like now him and his wife and her, her oldest son go someplace else to hunt. You ran to the game warden. Break yes. that story down.
1: So I am a, a massive advocate for conservation police, law enforcement, across the board, but... Specifically, conservation officers, so this year, I did a no no I got in a little bit of trouble, not necessarily legal trouble, but I definitely got a slap on the wrist, and I Man. wanted to share that story and how others could prevent themselves from doing it too. All it was was in the fine print me and a friend of my friend of mine went out deer hunting this year, we found a very small patch of public land that hardly anybody knows about. It's not advertised. There's no signage, really. There is a a two-car parking lot on the north side of 110 acres that is mostly wood. The the parking lot is mostly covered by foliage. You can't even see the sign-in station. Nobody knows about it, or very few people do, I should say. I had ran into another buddy of mine that was familiar with the area that had shown me this, So That's how I got to know about it. Now, we went down there on, I cannot remember the month. I think it was the first weekend in November. Nevertheless, we went down there and we hunted a day. We walked in in the morning, took everything with us on our backs, walked in, hung stands, hunted the entire day, seen a bunch of deer, took everything down, put it back on our backs and walked out that night. We we disturbed nothing. We harvested nothing. But the lesson to be learned here is that we did not read the fine print. And this all circles back to the public land talk that we had earlier about you really have to you have to follow the rules and regulations of your area and you have to take care of the land that you're using or else it can go away it's just like a kid that abuses video games or something or doesn't listen to their parents as soon as you start messing up your parents could take away your phone take away your your laptop your your, your iPad, whatever. And just the same for us as hunters and outdoors. If we start abusing this land, they can take it away from us. That conservation officer that stopped, uh, I had a conservation officer stop by my house two or three days after that. I wasn't home. I was actually out at a buddy of mine's place, helping him process deer. He's got a a deer processing facility. I was out there helping him skin deer and wife called said that there was a conservation officer here to talk to me. I was busy. He was actually pretty busy himself. He said, no big deal. I'll come back later couple days goes by and he stops by for a second time and I was already home. I wasn't running from him or I'm not afraid of police in any means, shape or form at all, mostly because I do my best to be a good citizen every day. I don't go I might drive a little fast on the highway, that's about it. so I it was extremely cold that day that he stopped or that night that he stopped by. And I said, why don't you come on in the house? I invited him into my house, into my kitchen. I sat down. He sat down. And I said, so what's going on? I had heard from my wife that you had stopped by a couple of days ago. He goes, I did. I did. He said, are you, are you familiar with this particular patch of public ground? And I'm sitting there scratching my head. And keep in mind, I had completely forgot about hunting it that day. And he goes, are you sure? I said, no, I'm, I'm not. He goes, are you sure? I was like, yeah, I am, man. That Really, the only public ground I hunt is this and this. I, har- I, I hardly ever venture away from that. And he goes, Did you hunt it with this buddy of yours? Said the buddy's name. I said, I did. Is that the. And I described the location of that small 110 acres that I had hunted that one time with my buddy. Okay. I described it to him, I said, is it, is it outside of this town? He goes, Yes, it is. I said, Yes, officer, I did hunt that. He goes, What dates? I said it was. It was just this one day. It was this this day of this month. And he goes, "Well, I have to be honest with you. You broke the law. And here's why it's important to read the fine print. It was the opening weekend of Upland Game Birds, and on that particular weekend, on that 110 acres, they do not allow any other hunting or hunters in there other than the hunters whose names were pulled in a lottery. That's how they. That's how they give you the permission to. to to hunt pheasant and quail on this 110 acres is through a lottery drawing. And our names were not on that lottery ticket. And I was honest with him. I didn't deny anything because of two things. One, I did it thinking that I was following the letter of the law. And two, I had absolutely no idea that this was going on because I didn't read. I thought that I was in the right. Even if I knew that I was in the wrong, I still would have told the truth. Because through my own experiences, the truth will set you free. If you're upfront and honest with any officer of any type, even if he still has to do his job at the end of the day and write you a ticket, they can always make it worse on you. He could have he could have dug a lot deeper than what he did. I told him that I didn't harvest an animal that day and I didn't, but he doesn't know if I'm lying. He could have got a warrant to search my house, search my my deep freezers. He would have found deer meat in there from the other deer that I had harvested that year. He would have found squirrel, rabbit, pheasant, catfish, walleye, crappie, he would have found a lot of wild game that he could have interpreted as something that I had harvested that day illegally.
2: Mm-hmm. He
1: could have done all of that, but I was honest with him up front, and I said, yes, I did. He showed me in black and white what the law says and the dates they're following, and I admitted to him to his face in person, yes, I, I, I broke the law that day. He let me off with a warning, verbal warning. Now, this is the best part. We had probably an hour-long con- conversation following on plans that his department has to open up more public ground to people. We had talks about how conservation officers are fewer and fewer and fewer they're, they're they're fewer and fewer in numbers and it's because the big wigs in the government particularly the left i believe are not seeing the importance. You know, PETA is out there to try and stop all all hunting, all, all uses of animals. And fishing
0: general. too. Did you see their new fishing video? I post on Bucks of America page, and it's like, I couldn't believe it. Now they're going after fishing too. It's like, a matter of time. Yeah, you can watch the video. It's, it's hilarious, uh, but it's also
1: frustrating. i have to watch that for this. PETA, groups groups there like that have are reaching out by the thousands, the hundreds of thousands, potentially millions. They have a lot of money in their pocket too. And what he was telling me is that they're trying to basically eradicate or do away with. Game wardens, conservation officers, at a, at a local level, they, they were more concerned with um, keeping around game wardens on national parks, obviously, because they want to see the, the, the benefit to the animal. The game wardens are there to protect the animals and the ecosystem. But he said that it's, there's less and less awareness about conservation police and went in telling tell me that there's five openings that they have in Illinois right now that they can't fill. People think that conservation officers don't make good money, which they do. State, their, their, their pay is comparable to state police and state police with a four year degree or four years of military experience. Walk on. You are a string starting lineup, $60,000 a year, your first year.
0: Wow. That's impressive.
1: You can make, now that's regional, regional to here, to the Midwest area, Northern Illinois, Iowa, Wisconsin area, $60,000 a year comparable to state police doesn't want to do that you get to drive around in a truck that you don't have to pay for you get to carry around some really nice firearms you get to get some some amazing training both with he's trained with um SWAT teams before for when they go into when they find marijuana grows back when marijuana was, it, was, was, was illegal
0: them. in illinois yeah now yeah. it's all legal back in the day <laughs> yeah uh, uh, 12 2019
1: moral of the story He was explaining to me how difficult it was to get those spots filled. It was more interesting to me because I had wanted to be a officer since I can remember. I actually wanted to be a game warden on Yellowstone National Park. I never knew, and it was never told to me. Well, let me rephrase that. It was told to me it's impossible to be a game board there's so so many people apply for it and there's not that many spots open that's a lot yeah. there are plenty of spots open i found i did my own research and it went by state state to state there was 5 positions in illinois there was 6 in iowa 3 in wisconsin 2 in indiana and the further west and north you went there was more and more vacancies more spots open now i don't i didn't do the research as to how much they made a year and their benefits package but you can make a living being a conservation officer and a damn good one at that. And you're also helping benefit the ecosystems, the the, the wildlife population. And you're also doing the job of a police officer. You're helping protect people. It's a very fulfilling job. And I, I, I just, I wanted to bring, I wanted to bring that topic up because I think that, I think that a lot of people carry the same understanding as I once did before I had that con- that conversation with them. All of my friends around here for the most part thought the same way I thought that there's there's no positions and everybody wants to do it. And that's just not the case.
0: Man, that's, that's a really good food for thought right there. It's like my, my experience with DNR, I've only dealt with like one or two over my lifespan, but it's like, I've always been cordial with them. And I always, I always opened up. How can I help you? Busy days. They got lives too. Even where I hunted and fish in, in uh, East, South Eastern Minnesota. It's like, the game warrants, they're hard and far and few between, you know, and especially since they don't, they've switched to more of an online registration honor system. It's like, you, you don't have the interaction with your community. And I feel bad for them because they need that communication. So this way then they can find the people that are doing wrong. And it's like, and that's what hurts a lot of, I was listening to, uh, Joey Diaz, he, he grew up back in the 70s in New York. And you're saying that they used to have beat cops that used to know the neighborhoods. They used to know everybody there. They used to know what's going on. And as we've gotten further and further on in the future here, they'd spend more of the time in their squad cars, but they don't have enough time to actually deal with um, the community, actually getting creating that bond. And it's nice that you've seen that since, a bo- since the war on cops has kind of stopped now. And, yep. well, at, well, at bay, at least, for a period of time until the left get back in the office. Yeah, until um, they
2: totally need something else to, to see- plan up. See-
0: yeah, but the nice thing is we're seeing them getting have a chance to get out there to interact with kids and and being part of the community again, which is great because it's like if something bad happens, I want to be able to go because that's how crimes get solved is because of interaction, you know? Because like nowadays of statistics of like solving um, domestic violence, uh, theft, robbery, uh, murder has just dropped drastically from the sixties and seventies and even in the eighties. Cause it's like they, it's just the, the, that disconnect and it's like how you pr- approach that officer was just textbook, you know, because it's like, and then the fact that he went through and he, and he explained more about it, it's like, it's like, that's just, that, that motivated me. It's like, what can we do more to help you out to make your lives more efficient so this way then you can get home to your families?
1: Another thing to keep in mind about that too, and I didn't mention this, he stopped by my house at 835 at night. Another thing to keep in mind about conservation officers is they're not like police. State, state, local, and county, police have shifts. You have a first, second, and third shift police department. There's not a first, second, and third shift conservation department. These guys get up in the morning at 4 o'clock in the morning, go out, do their job all day, and then come back home at 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night and do the same thing day in and day out. They fulfill a huge part in the law enforcement community just themselves. There's, there's, a hand, there's a handful of them in the state of Illinois. There's a handful of them in the state of Iowa, Missouri, local states or um, bordering states of Illinois. There's a handful of them to cover the entire state. He said he covered four counties just himself. And we just had Ron Palumbo, who was a longtime Whiteside County game warden. He just retired the other day. They're covering multiple counties by themselves. One for multiple counties, not shifts, not one per shift. That's one all day long. They, they have a huge role and they have a huge responsibility, a huge burden on themselves. And it, more light needs to be shed. More money needs to be allocated to them um, through the state and through the uh, federal agencies. More emphasis needs to be put on game wardens and conservation officers, conservation police.
0: I agree because up until this conversation, I had no idea he was going against that because I've listened to Steve Rinella and Randy Newberg when they sat down and they talked to the Sportsman Alliance and the tactics oh, that they do and, they, and how they jump around the states and what they do to get after hunting and fishing. It's like there is no leveling with these people. It's like they're going to attack hard and they have more money than we do. That's the worst part about it. Yeah
1: he put the most emphasis on that particular subject than anything else in the entire conversation. Even the fact that there's these massive vacancies across the state for, for conservation officers was the money that people have to throw specifically PETA, the money, the financial backing that these outlying groups have that are attacking outdoorsmen, hunters, fishermen. Mm -hmm. It's, it's an absurd amount. And I could, he didn't give me a dollar amount, so I don't have any evidence there, but he didn't seem like he was an uneducated individual. And his eyes got pretty big when he was describing to me the financial backing that they have. It's insane. Oh yeah. Let alone let alone the reach. With social media, there there's pros and cons to social media. One of the pros is that you can reach almost anybody across the entire globe through your phone right now, talking to you on this on my phone on this podcast. I this will this has the potential to reach people on other side of the planet
0: just to put you on pause for a moment that like i was looking through here and this i have people from the philippines russia czechoslovakia um uh, listening to my podcast which is like i would have never would have thought and it's like it's just fantastic to see that you are right that my podcast is reaching people across the seas and it's like a shout out to those who listen because like they don't get the privilege what we do here
1: and so that that is one pro but that's also the same con Yes, is that you're trying to get when you're trying to promote, say conservation, when you're trying to promote conservation and clean, ethical killing, um, harvesting of animals, when you're trying to promote that, the other side has just as easy of a time. Once their voice gets big enough, it's it's a snowball effect. You start off with one snowflake and you end up with you know a boulder. Yes, we need to have a louder voice. There needs to be. You know, a lot, a lot of us, uh, at least a portion of the people that I'm exposed to around here, that the outdoorsmen around here, they're just good old boys. They want to come home and love their families, live their lives in peace. They don't really have an interest in speaking up. A lot of the guys that I, that I expose myself to, they would be more than happy to donate money. They would be more than happy to go out and actually do the physical work. But not so much the voice. So these these few voices like like you, like myself, like um, Steve Renella, uh John Dudley, all these all these all these big powerful voices. We need more of them for conservation. We need to spread the word, and it it can't go unchecked. And people don't understand what will happen if our resources, our natural resources, specifically wildlife, go unchecked. Do your research, people. Go out there, read the articles. Go out into the woods, walk around the woods, see species you see, take it in, go watching, just take your binoculars out and go through, walk through the woods, walk through your public lands, experience what you had to experience. Make your own judgments from there, and I encourage anybody, any chance that you have to, to advocate for conservation, do it. I bring it up all the time because it's a big deal to me. It's a big part of how I live my life and my family's lives. And I will I will talk about it until I'm blue in the face and, and until I breathe my last breath.
0: And that's what we appreciate about appreciate about yourself and in your community stuff like I looked about just looked at my phone. I have eleven podcasts or tw- or if not more that are all about wildlife and like a nice thing is that myself, um where to Hunt podcast, the release podcast, the Smackdown podcast. All of us have been on each other's podcasts. We we talk about it on the daily outside of social media, and it's like we just try to do, bring as much content as we possibly can. And some of my friends have gotten into upland bird dogs stuff like that. Some of them got out to out west. You know, we've, we're trying to tackle as much as we possibly can. And between a lot of us, we're we're, we're probably our numbers are probably reaching the hundreds of thousands. But you know, we thank you for Joe Rogan for reaching millions of people
2: yeah his advocacy has
0: changed a lot of people because he's the reason why i got into bow hunting because it's like i was looking for a tra- new challenge and it's like i could take this up and now it's like all i do is bow hunt because it's like i have tinnitus in my right ear and it's like i don't want to have that deteriorate so i i, I shine more away from uh, firearms but it's like i still but i wear i hearing protection now more more frequently
1: yeah i, I listen to joe rogan a lot too and that that guy i actually am, i'm trying to get my dad turned on to him right now My dad's a little bit older school. The podcast scene is very new to him, and uh, I was explaining to—I we just had this conversation last night, actually, while I was messaging back and forth with you. Joe Rogan's podcast and and podcasts similar to that—you get characters on there, specific to myself—that can really change your views on things, widen your 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 scope, how you view people, how you view happenstances. You know, another talking point that I wanted to talk about was the carnivore diet.
0: Yeah, you tell me you're you're gonna jump on that
1: through Joe Rogan, and um, now I can't think of the gentleman's name that he had on there. That's gonna I, bother me.
0: I know uh, Rob Lowe is on the carnivore diet. Well, Atkins diet, where it's where it's high but uh, Jordan Peterson's on the carnivore diet as George, well.
1: Yes, yeah, his daughter had a. That's that's where I had first heard about it. His daughter had an autoimmune disease, born with it, and she had tried the elimination diet originally to where she was she would eat her regular amount of intake. Just a, her regular variety and from there would start removing she would start removing sunflower seeds she would start removing milk she would start removing cereals pastas stuff like that until she basically narrowed this her entire diet down to red meat cooked medium rare pork well done chicken well done fish and eggs that 's all her diet consists of and it completely chemically reset her body for the most part now she would go off on these tangents about how she would jealous of her dad, others, friends, she would see a big bowl of pasta sit in there, her mouth would start to water, she, you know, she'd start getting the shakes and everything, she couldn't yeah. resist, and that would cripple her for a month at a time. It opened my eyes to the carnivore diet. My wife of eight years, some levels of mental illness, she's, she has depression and anxiety. Like depression and anxiety, they come in waves, and she's, she's fought it for a portion of a majority of her life well over half her life we've tried a lot we've tried acupuncture medication um, exercise uh, audible therapy a lot a lot of different things to try and get to try and reset her body or to try and change her mood we've tried things to where she could see de- see a, de- a depressive state coming on and try to basically mind trick herself into getting away from that state. we've tried a lot of stuff and when i heard that jordan peterson podcast I had recommended it to her. I had showed it to her. I said you need to sit down, take 3 hours out of your day while you're and turn that podcast on while you're working and listen to it. I really think that that would I I really think that that would be something worth trying. So fast forward to where we became pregnant and the carnivore diet
0: for the first time or second time?
1: For the second time. Okay. As as so the as of recent about a year and a half, 2 years ago. I said listen to it once let's let's try this after the baby's born, and after you're done breastfeeding, now she's she's wrapping up breastfeeding. After seven months, we're getting to the point where we're going to get serious about trying it, and I'm excited because carnivore diet. Joe Rogan goes in and talks to while in a podcast with Tom Papa, goes in and talks about how he he felt like it chemically reset his body. He talked about there was there was no crash after he eats uh, when he eats a steak for supper there's no crash afterwards he literally feels that that 10 to 15 minutes after he's done eating feels the exact same as the 10 to 15 minutes before but he has food in his system there's no crash he noticed that fat weight was melting off of him and i am no greek god
0: (laughs) (laughs) i'm the same boat you are we got the dad bods rocking
1: here i like drinking bush light and, Mm
0: -hmm. and eating
1: cheeseburgers man I'm I'm interested to see not only what it does for me, but what it can do for somebody with depression and anxiety. It's something that, that there's not a lot of research on, and there is quite a bit of flack in reference to the deficiencies that come with that. The research that I've done on it, there's a couple of books that are referenced in a few of Joe Rogan's podcasts. They basically go in to say that you have to replace a certain amount of nutrients through vitamins and minerals that you would normally take in through plants, through carb-like bases, fish oils, you you do have to replace a certain amount of that in your body or else you can really cause damage. But this carnivore diet, with the prospect of it chemically resetting your, your body, helping my wife mentally. You know, I had a I had a really good conversation with a gentleman down there at the Cat Masters. Now, this guy was the complete opposite of you and me. He was built like a house, published in magazines before for his fitness and all this. His wife did the carnivore diet for an extended period of time. It did exactly what I'm hoping it does for my wife. After the first month and a half, she completely threw away all of her depression and anxiety medication that she was on. She was bipolar also. Got rid of all of it.
0: Wow, that's impressive. Because bipolar is a difficult thing to conquer.
1: Yeah, her eyesight got better. Not that this is necessarily appropriate for all viewers, but the weight was put on and all the right spots on her body. <laughs> you know I, mean. I get it.
0: I get it. I get it. I follow um,
1: you. Um, the front and back, top and bottom her body changed for the better. She was leaner, she was meaner, and she was a better version of herself. And she kept doing this for an extended period of time. And she saw nothing but benefits from it. She did it also in a time where there wasn't much research done on it, especially with deficiencies. She was hospitalized once. That was in a time where they thought that you could eat just red meat, just beef, Elk venison, and thought that that was going to be an okay way to go about it, and it's not. You can really hurt your gut health Um, from uh, an immune system from immune system standpoint. Red meat isn't actually the best thing for a healthy immune system because it. I'm sorry that I don't know the particulars on it. I'm not a dietitian by any means. Um, You have to be very careful about the way that you go about it. But I'm going to on my social media platforms when she starts it, and also our YouTube channel. We're going to document that on a weekly basis, starting off from two weeks before. she. Uh, we've talked about maybe, maybe keeping a journal of some type, and I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to document this very well to, to maybe, if it helps my wife and the struggles that we've went through, and her specifically, I am going to do everything in my power to share that with others. So that will be definitely very well documented. But it's an interesting, interesting thing to think about, going back to a, a primitive type diet
0: yeah that's what uh, i was listening to the machine from uh, um he's a ufc fighter. fighters currently in jail because he beat up his uh, porn star girlfriend in las vegas okay. yeah and cool. he and he was but but he, he has his own mental health issues but he would but he felt that that's what how he became such a really good fighter but i've like my wife has so, suffers from some of the same symptoms same, same symptom as well and it's like and she gets bored of one thing or like one thing we found that uh, has been most consistent is cbd oil CBD oil, um, ingesting it has been the, you know, like she does a thousand milligrams and that's helped her get, get off of the depression meds. And then she also has little one, e, or little, um, CBD pens that she can hit on real quick for some odd reason for all these years, I've never had anxiety from what I'm driving most of the time. Like I can handle stress like uh, a couple of years ago, New Year's Eve, coming home from work. And I got, I got let out early and we're coming, we're, we're driving down. There's this store called bittersweet and there's a bunch of cop cars there and stuff like that. We're coming around the cops discharge the firearms. One of them went through the arm and hit the, the side panel of her door. Everybody else is on high adrenaline. I'm just chilling. I have no flashbacks. Okay. I don't. Then I have over 20 years of experience of playing paintball, so I'm used to being shot at. So it's like I'm used to having that adrenaline dump. Only when I drive and it's in bad conditions, where my anxiety goes up. Found that CBD has helped me for the the quick instant relief that I need. It's like I felt it like where it goes through your fingers and up through your cheekbones. It's a very intense attack. That's like I've had to stop, pull over. My daughter's in the back seat of the truck, and I had to stop and I had to stretch and calm myself down. It's
1: I just recently got a snowmobile this year, so that was my new toy for the winter. And we haven't gotten that much snowfall compared to the last two years. What stuff we have got, can see an eight-foot drift across the road any day of the week. The drifting up here is crazy.
0: That's what I noticed. and It's like, I'm surprised you went and got yourself a snowmobile. It's like, for me, it's like I've spent a little bit more money on a nicer boat.
1: I don't want you to think that my snowmobile is nicer than my boat because it's not. It's not uh, (laughs) a... It's a it's a circa circa eighties beater snowmobile, and it's just something for us to screw around on around here. I found out recently that my daughter is an adrenaline junkie. My oldest. Oh, fun! So I took her out on that snowmobile It's so I don't even know what year it is. Actually, I, I do a lot of bartering, a lot of trading. Oh,
2: okay. And, uh,
1: I that's how I had accrued that snowmobile, and so I took her out on a ride the other day, and we're all safety geared up. She's in front of me. I've got both of my hands on the bars and she's got both of her hands on the bars and I've got her legs tucked into mine. She's, if I go off the sled, that's the only way that she can go off the sled. And so we're ditch banging. We're going back and forth, slaloming in the ditch and we get up to a field entrance. And so I go out into the field and I open it up a little bit. I look down at the speedometer and we're hanging out at about 50 and I hear a little itty bitty from this helmet. I hear a little itty bitty. And I, so I, you know, I stopped and I, I turned her head around and I said, did you just say something? Or are you okay? And she goes, go faster, go faster. I think 50 fast enough. She goes, no, I want to go faster. So I circled back around and I leaned back, pulled both of us back a little bit to where the front end had lift up. And she's just dying laughing. She's <laughs> up every last bit of it. I've got an adrenaline junkie, uh, six six-year-old daughter.
0: I could see her marrying a guy with a bike, which <laughs> which kind of makes sense. Me. It makes sense about my mom now because my dad before he had me, he he had like four or five bikes, and as soon as you caught one, it was pregnant. It's like he sold all of his bikes. He sold his uh, uh, Roadrunner. and so yep. anyway, anyways, I'm pretty like we had a great conversation. Man. Do, you, do you have any concluding thoughts, or do you want to say it to, to wrap things up, or have any words of wisdom?
1: I guess the best thing that I can say is hoe your own row and take care of yourself and others be a good neighbor to people be a a good conservationist and i think that's the message i was trying to get across in this podcast most was i'm an avid outdoorsman and all of my buddies are avid outdoorsmen and we have to take care of what we've got so we can potentially get more be good to yourself and be good to other people
0: that is a great place to end thank you folks for tuning in